Hello and welcome to the Tau of Color Grading Podcast. My name is Patrick Inhofer and we are at part three of our interview with Flanders Scientific's Brom Desmet. And up to this point, <laughs> these podcasts have run really long. Well, guess what? You've got a bit of a respite here. We're going to go just under 30 minutes here. Uh, so we're going to give your ears a little bit of a rest. And what we're going to do is talk about the future. We're going to talk about things like Rec 2020, 4K displays, uh, where the industry stands. And then at the second half of this podcast, I am going to have Brahm answer the questions that were posed to him on Lift Gamma Gain. Now, these are all tend to be kind of specific to how the Flanders Scientific displays work, uh, but his answers are actually kind of instructive no matter what monitor or reference display you're using in your shop, uh, chances are some of the things he talks about here may be relevant to you. So in the interest of not running long, let me jump right into where we left off as we start talking about the future. And then on the back end of this podcast, I have a couple extra things to say. All right, we've been chatting for a really long time. Yes. So let's start wrapping this up by Great. talking about the future. And there are a couple things I'm thinking about. Let's start, while we're talking color spaces and specifications, this thing that's out there called Rec 2020. Yes. Can you explain to the listeners what's the deal with that? How far along is it? And how does it change anything that we're doing? Yeah. So um, I think, you know, for colorists, the most kind of exciting um, and also the most challenging part of this is the color gamut that is specified. And there's not much that can reproduce that color gamut. And so I if I'm not mistaken, and uh, you'd have you'd have to check with Semti, not me, but I think there's already a working group that that is uh, that is trying to come up with ways to deal with Rec 2020 mastered content in more limited color gamuts, because again, there's not much that can do that. Typically, you need something like a laser projector, or you need uh, new fancy versions of existing technologies that. You know, like an like an LED or OLED that maybe filter the light in such a way to give you uh, that ultra wide gamut, but there's not much that can do do all of it, and for good reason. If you look at the Rec 2020 color gamut, the uh, the the chromaticity points, that triangle that we look at that shows the color gamut, it lies on the spectral locus, which is that that edge of the horseshoe shape that you see in the color diagram, and basically those are monochromatic light sources. So that's like at one at one specific wavelength you have that. And that's why lasers are, are one of the easiest ways to achieve those very wide color gamuts. There are other ways to do it potentially. It's just very, very difficult. And so the point of Rec 2020, I, from my understanding, is everyone's tired of having to constantly redefine color gamuts. Well, let's Correct. just make it like what human perception is and be done with it. You know? Yeah, and you know the the caveat there being that that it still doesn't give you quite what human perception is. You know, it gives you as large as you can get while still maintaining a triangle as your color right. gamut. You'd have to get to something horseshoe shaped to right. be able to do it all. So, so but yeah, for for all intents and purposes, it, it's the largest triangle that you can essentially fit uh, inside of that uh, color space diagram. So. 
Um, it, it is, it's very interesting. Um, it goes a long way towards kind of, you know, doing away with this constantly revised color spaces, but at the same time it's challenging, you know, and not a lot of displays are going to be able to do this, uh, you know, even in the longer term, I think it's going to be quite a while before we get to any sort of, you know, mass adoption of rec 2020 capable displays. So yeah, it, it, it's interesting, but it's challenging. And there's all sorts of other problems that go into it. Um, once you start to get to those highly saturated kind of very narrow bandwidth type peaks that you typically have with something that could re reproduce those colors, you also, from our kind of experimenting, you get more variability between the way that people see those colors. Right. So things start to look a little bit more dissimilar to people as you deal with those ultra-wide color gamuts. Kind of a little more fantasy colors, right? It's, yeah. You just don't see them in real life type of thing. Yeah, it's, it's uh, it, like I said, it's certainly, certainly interesting. Um, it remains to be seen how it is practically applied because, you know, it's one thing to say, hey, we're going to come up with ways for display that can't do 2020 to show 2020 mastered content, but we're not even at the point now where we can say, well, what the heck are we going to use to actually master 2020 content <laughs> faithfully? So, but again, the, that this is an early framework. I think there's going to be a lot of work done uh, to make this usable. But you know, people who are calling me now and saying, do you support Rec 2020? I'm like, why? What requirement <laughs> could you possibly have for this at this moment? So it, like I said, it's, it's, it is interesting though. I'm, I'm really excited to see um, you know, how, how everybody can push the limits with this. All right. And now this is the elephant in the room. Uh, this is what everyone is probably waiting for us to get to, uh, who may have listened to us four years ago, which is this little thing called 4K. Yes. So, who's making 4K displays? And in other words, are, are there a, a bunch of different production lines out there making 4K displays? What are we seeing in the professional space in terms of 4K? And we're so close to NAB, I don't, I don't think it's fair to ask you to speculate on where you think FSI is going on 4K. But if you just kind of give us the state of 4K and, uh, and what, you know, generally we might see in the future. Yeah, so panel options are exploding. I mean, we've got we've got so many more places to go for panels. Um, by and large, most options are UHD. You're looking at a 3840 by 2160 resolution. I think going forward, you're still going to see that most large size monitors are going to be that resolution. Uh, a 4096 by 2160 panel, they exist from several suppliers, but they tend to be a lot more expensive and available in, or much less available, I should say. So those things I think are going to be adopted industry-wide coming forward, you know, uh, for people who need that. As I've told people over the years, we probably could have done a 4K monitor realistically a couple of years ago. You know, the question for us, Landers, is, you know, what can we bring to the table? I don't want to be an also-ran in the hyper-expensive 4K market. You know, that's that's not our game. It never has been. I hope it never is. I don't want to sell $35,000, $40,000, 30-inch monitors. I think that's almost asinine, to be honest with you. So that's just not what we want to do. Now, the moment that I think I can bring value to that market and and give you something that can do the job that it needs to do at a reasonable price, right. we'll, we'll be there. We've been working on it 
for a long time in terms of uh, compatibility, in terms of uh, single sport. We've even done some things in beta on our current series to, to play with this technology a little bit. But, you know, the, the question is really panel cost, you know, and also right. panel performance because right. there's a lot of LCDs and, you know, the question is where are they going to be used? And, and it gets a little tricky because if I come out with a $60,000, you know, 50-inch 4K monitor, my problem there is, you know, the guy who's got that sort of money is probably just going to invest more and get an actual nice 4K projector, right? Right. Um, and then, you know, people who want 4K on set, the problem is that that's still, by and large, not all that practical because of connectivity issues. So you either have to run four cables or if you're not running four cables and you're running like a 12G SDI cable, how far can you run it? I mean, these are, these are real world concerns. And also the question is on a 24 inch monitor, what, what really does having 4K native res give you uh, when most of these cameras can output an HD signal that's just fine for previewing the image? So we have to kind of figure out where we fit in the market, you know, and, and, um, I think that there's a growing need for 4K native for VFX style work, but you can use computer monitors for that. And then for editing, yeah, I, I think that maybe there's a growing need need to have that. And maybe there's a growing need to have it for color correction as well. And that is going to be all about price, you know, finding those monitors that can be good enough for the colorist still cost less than what we drive, uh, our old motto. So... Okay. All right. That's a, that's a good answer. And so that, that'll take us now into some of these questions from Lift Gamma Gain that sure. we haven't already answered. Uh, and we touched on this, but let's, uh, I guess, let's just say it specifically. Uh, Chris Ratledge asks, uh, FSI factory calibration, when I get a monitor specifically from you, what am I set at in terms of the factory calibration for color space, uh -huh. gamma setting, white, you know, um, peak luminance? And as I switch between my different gamma settings or as I switch between my different color spaces, do I need to recalibrate this thing uh, on my own? Okay, so um, the, the way we deliver the monitor uh, nowadays is that when you, when you get the monitor powered on, it's going to be in Rec. 709 and you're going to have a power 2.4 EOTF or gamma function. And on the OLED specifically, again, if you want to raise your black level uh, at that point, you're going from a power 2.4 to really a BT1886 response at whatever black level you end up setting. As you switch color spaces, there's no need to recalibrate. So you can go from P3 to Rec. 709 to EBU to SEMTC, which are the standard color spaces we built in. And that will, those will be specific LUTs that lay on top of that baseline gamma calibration and will get you to those different color spaces without a problem. Uh, so there's no reason to recalibrate when switching color spaces. Now, when you're switching, if you want to use something besides Power 2.4 or besides on the, on the, on the OLED with Race Black's uh, BT-1886, um, you can, of course, recalibrate to whatever you want. Um, that being said, the instant gamma selection, that is a mathematically calculated gamma selection. So we go from, if you switch from 2.4 to 2.2, that's something we mathematically calculate inside the monitor based on the old measured data. That tends to be pretty darn accurate, but again, it's not based on actual measured data. So for people who really want to dial in, say, a 2.2 perfectly, then yeah, maybe you want to recalibrate at that point to, to dial it in even further. 
so yeah, there's that. That's kind of how how they come delivered. And uh, the other thing to keep in mind is there are three user positions on top of those factory positions, and you can certainly put your own LUTs in there. But if you want, if when you're ordering a new monitor, or even if you send in a monitor to us for service, you can request something custom to be put in there. So we've had customers do that where they say, you know. Uh, for whatever reason, they need a uh, you know a 1.8 gamma response, or uh, we've had all sorts of weird requests, and we can do that for you. Uh, mm. Different color spaces, you know, if you need uh, Adobe RGB on one of our wide gamut units, if if you want that, then just let us know, and we can program that in uh, as a custom LUT, and we're we're happy to do that for people. Another question from Chris is. Um, what can be done to reduce the price of a 17-inch OLED to be more in line with like the 4K Sony OLEDs? The 17-inch that's actually a little more expensive than the 24-inch, isn't it? It's it is. It's uh yeah. it's about $1500 more and yeah. the the simple reason for that is the panel costs the 17-inch panel, it's 16 and a half actually, costs us a lot more money from the supplier than the 24 and a half inch. Huh, so interesting. it's just simple economics. Uh, we can't even match the price of a 24 just because the panel costs us that much money. So the only way that that's going to change, unfortunately, is if the panel supplier is willing to work with us to lower the price. And there's been a lot of resistance to do that. We haven't been able to come to an agreement to lower the price beyond where it is now. So really, yeah, we we, we don't push hard to sell the 17-inch monitor. It's really there for the people who, you know, for whatever reason, they must have 17. For example, it, it needs to go in a rack or something like that. Right. So so that's the only reason. I, I, you know, I can't speak to why the suppliers made that decision, right. but it's just the simple economics of where we are at with, with that particular supplier. And uh, his last question is, and this, I guess, has to do more with onset applications mm -hmm. where Audio monitoring may come out of a computer. Uh -huh. It may come out of a board. And then you're looking at picture, which is coming up, being disembedded off of SDI. Yeah. And, um, and so you get those processing delays. Yeah. And is there a way that we can get those two to sync up so that it, I can listen to a non-SDI audio source? And watch my SDI display without that kind of processing display, uh, delay. Yeah, so there's there's actually several kind of steps you want to go through in order to to make sure that you're you're doing everything you can to minimize processing delay. Um, so the 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 first of those is there is a fast mode on the monitor, and that's going to reduce delay. Where where some people kind of stop is is at that they put it in fast mode and they say, well, there's still too much delay. But there's actually more steps that you need to make sure you do in order to, to verify that you're in the lowest pro possible processing delay. So one of those is there's a function on the, on the menu called show PSF as. And if you have show PSF as set as progressive, you're going to introduce a lot of additional delay. So you want to set show PSF as to interlaced in those applications where you need the lowest latency. And that's even if the signal is not progressive segmented frame. If it's interlaced or progressive, it doesn't matter. You need to make sure that is left on interlaced to give you the lowest processing delay. Otherwise, it puts it in a mode where you add delay. And then the other thing is to keep in mind that the delay is a function of the frame rate. So we're always a certain number of fields or frames of delay. So with a 1080 i60 source, you only have one frame of delay. So the, the delay is actually, it's about the same as just about every other monitor on the market when you have those two settings set appropriately, fast mode and show PSF as. And when you have both of those set accordingly, 
you're going to only get, again, 33 milliseconds or so of delay, which for most live audio applications is actually not problematic. Um, when you go to a lower frame rate, though, something like P24, you're going to have more physical delay. The number of frames of delay is basically still the same, but because the frames take longer, the intervals between them take longer because there are fewer of them per second, you get more delay in the video processing. So where that comes into play, some cameras have independent recording and monitoring outputs. So you could be recording to your internal media at 24 frames, but maybe there's a 60i or 60p output option on that camera. And if you do that, you'll get considerably less delay. And that's a very effective workaround that a lot of people have used to minimize delay. That being said, we, we do recognize, you know, uh, that, you know, there's people who want something that's even further than that, you know, a real zero delay mode. The, the big challenge has always been that most brands that offer a zero delay, so even less than that one frame of delay, you usually lose picture quality. In our fast mode, there's no loss in picture quality. It's the same as in normal mode. The thing that's gonna update more slowly or that where you sacrifice some, some performance is on the ancillary features. So things like your scopes may update more slowly. So that's kind of our, our current state on those things, but it is an active area of interest to see what more could be done. Let's just put it that way. Okay, very good. And uh, Patrick Hogue out of Vancouver, uh, I think he might be reacting on this question. At NAB last year, you were showing some live grading going on at your display, directly onto your display with a little app that ran on a computer. Mm -hmm. And if he's wondering if your latest model of monitors will allow for live color correction without an external LUT box, he would love that feature. Anything you're willing to talk about right now about that? Yeah, so one of the big things, of course, is you know in order to do a lot of updates, so in order to do live grading effectively, without an external love uh, LUT box. What you really need is the ability to have probably in the order of 30 LUT updates per second. Anything less kind of starts to feel clunky. It doesn't give you a smooth experience. So we've done what we can with our hardware to give DIT specifically a lot more power. Uh, this last year, we, we, we've, we've really taken an intense interest in, in trying to cater to that DIT market. And so we have the ability now to store preset LUTs. So you have 16 3D LUTs and 16 1D LUTs you can set onto the monitor to preview different looks. So we've already got that in place. As far as you know, the real-time updating that would be necessary to kind of forego a LUT box, that is that that's a little bit more challenging but again it, it's an intense area of interest and something that we've we're taking a very long hard look at and uh, we're gonna do everything we can to try to cater even more to that market because we see some some real value in having to you know bring one less piece of equipment with you so yeah uh, I would uh, uh, yeah keep your eyes out <laughs> over okay. all right all right now uh, alan gordon from new york city he asked uh, about 4k displays we covered that mm -hmm. and now jason myers who uh runs lift gamma game yes. out of uh, los angeles uh, we know and love him very much he's asking how about a mac or pc app that allows us to quickly load manage luts change and set up display settings uh, maybe even automated end user calibrations, that type of thing. Sure. Yeah. No, it's a it's a good question. Um, where we are with that is so one when it comes to like loading, especially DIT lots and even the calibration lots, 
that's already about as quick and easy as we can make it. it the monitor literally shows up as a mass storage device. You, you just plug it in. You don't have to hit any special buttons to make it show up like you did in the old days with Flanders monitors. You plug it in. It thinks it's a thumb drive. Uh, that works on a Mac or a PC, and you just drag and drop the LUT file over, and then you tell the monitor to update that LUT position. The LUT update process on the monitor on the new CM and BM series, loading a new LUT takes all of about two seconds. Uh, so it, so they're a lot quicker now. It used yeah. to take a lot longer. Yeah, it used yeah. to take like, uh, yeah, I think it was like a, several minutes per yeah. lookup table. Now it's literally a couple seconds for either a calibration or a um, or a DIT LUT. You can load 16 3D DIT LUTs to the monitor in about a minute or so. So it, it is considerably faster than it used to be. So that's pretty easy already. Um, the automated end user calibration, we kind of have something like that. We've had it from day one where we do a plug and play system with a relatively high end probe. So you use a CA310, you plug it into the monitor and that will do a white balance calibration. So you're not doing the full 3D LUT based calibration, but you're getting at least your color temperature and gamma response back into line. So we've had that, but it's been kind of cost prohibitive because you need something with a, um, a serial cable and there are not a lot of probes that do that these days. Most things are USB. And then as far as a, a, a program, you know, we're we're honestly quite happy with the solutions that we're integrating with right now with Whitespace and with Calman and with Fuji. And those are really their areas of core competency and they're doing a really good job. And again, what I would kind of like to see as opposed to every manufacturer coming out with their own in-house calibration solution or CMS, which is kind of what you have now uh, on the yeah. market in large part, I would love to see more brands open up and say, you know, I'm going to work with Calman, I'm going to work with Lightspace, uh, I'm going to maybe even work with, with with Fuji like we do. And so what that gives you again is that consistency, not just between one monitor brand, but between multiple monitor brands. So if, you know, if you're using Brand X and I'm using Flanders, that as long as we're both using Lightspace or both using Calman, that we can set our displays the same way using the fundamental, same fundamental color management system there. So that would be my preference. And I don't really see us aggressively pursuing something besides that because I think it, it, it's you know, counterproductive to, to that sort of goal of, of getting some more consistency in the industry. Yeah, I love that. That's a great answer. That's uh, I'm with you totally, 100% on that. Nat Jenks from New York asks, so in the CM250, he's concerned, he's thinking, he does a lot of 2K work. Yeah. And he's concerned about scaling artifacts when displaying 2K. Mm -hmm. What type of scaling is used? How good is the scaling? Scale, scaling down is easy. It's always been easy for us. So that is really not a problem. The, the, the much bigger challenge historically has, of course, been you know blowing SD up to, uh, to an HD right. screen. And, right. and there, I think we do as good a job as just about anybody. But scaling down, that that's we have tons of people who do that. They monitor 2048 by 1080 on the panel. It just scales it to fit. And of course, the real important thing is that there is a one-to-one -one pixel mapping mode. You hit one button, it goes into that, and then you can scan left or right, bounce left or right, that is, to see any portion of it one-to-one. -one. So typically, you're not going to see anything that could be perceived as an artifact. And if there is an area of concern on the screen, you want to know, is this because of monitor scaling or is this something natively in my source? You bounce into that mode real quick and you can actually take a pixel for pixel look at it 
and, and make a quick determination as to uh, whether that's a scaling artifact uh, caused by the monitor or not. Would that would I use one of the the on front like yeah just use H a function position button. v position knobs so actually you you just hit the function button uh, and it yeah. goes one to one and uh, then you believe it's the first button the h position this is in our, our manual but you you, you yeah. press the button and it bounces left and then you press it again and it bounces right and then ah, it bounces gotcha. to the center again so you can see any portion of it one to one we also have something called our our pixel uh, pixel zoom feature and what that allows you to do is actually draw a box on screen anywhere you want and scale in even more than just one-to-one. -one. And what's great about that is actually an artifact-free scaling because what it does is it takes one pixel and always makes it an even number of other pixels. So your box that you draw is always 16 by 9, but you can change its position, you can change its size, you can zoom in almost infinitely and really blow up any portion that you want. And it's going to look softer because you're kind of virtually making the pixels right. bigger, but right. you're not introducing any complex scaling algorithms because it's not like one pixel is becoming one and a half pixels. It's always one to an even number of other pixels. Gotcha. He has another question. I've got, uh, let's see, one more question from him and then a final question. Sure. Uh, so uh, Nat also asks when working in DCI-P3 uh -huh. uh, and dealing with out-of-gamut color mapping, uh -huh. He says, uh, you know, when typically when dealing with these types of colors, you would either clip it or round it off these out of gamma colors. How do you deal with that? Um, not really sure what he means by rounding off. We do clip that. I mean, that's what we do if there's an out of gamma color on any monitor versus the color space that is trying to operate in. But, you know, you could have like maybe he's thinking like there's overflow wrapping, but that would lead to nasty artifacts so we don't we don't do that there's there's been propositions for like a perceptual scaling so like right. you have a monitor that only does rec 709 you're monitoring p3 and what it does is it, it perceptually tries to scale that so that you're not doing any clipping you see differentiations at every level but scale to a rec 709 space i don't know anybody that does that in practice so the the practice has been to 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 just clip now on an OLED in P3 that's going to be negligible you're you're not going to really see anything because the P3 coverage is almost 100%. So for all intents and purposes you you can use a, a OLED in P3 you can use a CM240 in P3 you can use a CM171 in P3 and those offer more than enough coverage to where any clipping would not really be visible. Where you are going to get much more significant clipping is uh, something like our Rec. 709 only monitors, like our BM210, BM230. Those, you know, simply don't offer near enough coverage. They're basically Rec. 709 color gamut, so that would be more problematic. But even on those, if you go to the P3 emulation mode, it is just a, a clipping that we that we use. And again, that that's I don't know anybody who's implementing other methods because they end up being more problematic or because there's just not a well-defined way to do it like i mentioned with the perceptual scaling that people have talked about which is basically implementing like a really complex limiter that then scales and um, again the only other thing i could think of is overflow wrapping but which mathematically makes sense but not visually <laughs> Okay, fair enough. That's a, that's a great answer. And so our final question, and of course, anytime you shout out to the inner tubes, <laughs> um, you're always going to get one or two of those kind of weirdo responses, right? Yeah. 
And of course, on Lift Gamma Gain, uh, that gets us Paul Provost. Yes. <laughs> and he has a question for you because I, I Wait, said, why, you know, why is Paul online? Isn't this a time of year he goes skiing? I, I have no <laughs> idea. Uh, apparently, this is the only question he has about displays and monitors and yes. FSI. Which is, uh, what's your relationship to Bram Stoker? Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll enhance that by saying, I guess your mom must have been a big Dracula fan or something, no, right? She's into like no. the dark arts. I, w- I, I so wish I was <laughs> that cool. No, just Bram just happens to be a uh, popular name. It, it, actually, not so much in Belgium even. It was just a popular Dutch name. And uh, my parents were big on the Dutch names. <laughs> it's pretty funny. My name's Bram. My sister's name is Yoka. And my parents are Dan and Linda. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. Well, Paul, thank you very much for that insightful penetrating question. (laughs) Yeah, now now it's time to go back skiing. And um, Brom, thank you so much. I mean, we we went two hours. I I told you ninety minutes. No worries. And uh, you're always so willing to answer all my. And I didn't even get to all my questions. I skipped over a bunch of stuff. And so that means we're just going to have you back at some point, and it won't be four years. (laughs) Sounds good. Yes. All right. Thank you very much, Brom. Chat to you soon. Yep. What did I just chat to you soon? What what kind of ridiculous statement was that? All right. Well, that's probably one of the worst sign-offs in all of the history of podcasting. But I want to thank Brom for spending literally two hours with us to just geek out on this stuff and really explain very arcane and technical parts of our craft in ways that are understandable to people like me. Uh, and hopefully you as well. So real quick, we're about a week and a half, almost two weeks out from NAB 2015 at the time I'm recording this. Just want to give you a quick update. If you check on the website on the page for this show, for part three of this episode, I've got a link out to the NAB website with our full day of color correction training. Uh, It's been updated with all the latest session information we've locked out in the sessions. One last bit of news is for the Colorist Mixer, we've had a tremendous response. We sold out in six days for this get-together. We're going to have it NAB of colorists, of DPs, and the vendors who serve us. And we've sold out. The wait list sold out, and we made a deal with the venue, and this is the first time we're really announcing this. We made a deal with the venue because our event lasts two hours, and you're going to get some food, and you're going to get some drinks. When that two hours is over, it's going to go to pure cash bar, cash food, and we're going to open up the doors for an hour, but only for people who are on our wait list. And we've removed all the restrictions on the wait list. The wait list is opened again. So if you want to show up and you're going to show up at 9.30 that evening, go ahead, sign up for the wait list. And at 9.30, the door is open and we will let you in as quickly as we can check you in. And then at 10.30, the doors just go wide open to the public and uh, anybody can come in after that. And I guarantee you there will be people still hanging out uh, 10.30, 11.30. So that's it. That wraps up this edition of the Tau of Color Grading podcast. My name's Patrick Inhofer, and I will see you next time in this podcast or at the Colorist Mixer or at NAB in two weeks. See you then. (laughs) 